So we are going to be in Genesis chapter 4. Mention this ordering and filling and resting. This is a theme we've been talking about through Genesis. And it is the way we live out God's character. Men and women, we've been talking about together, are commissioned to image God through this ordering, resting, and filling through the demandment mandate, right? Genesis 1, 27, 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So we captured this in another three words. This, we, we image God by ordering and filling and resting. And we live out this mandate that he's given us by representing him, by reproducing ourselves both physically and spiritually, and by redeeming, taking chaos and making it orderly. Physically and spiritually. It's who we are. It's who we've been created to be. And so before the fall, as we've been talking, there was a world created by God to be filled, to be propagated, to be ordered. That's what He did. And His vehicle, the vessel for this filling and ordering, was a family. how he decided to do it you imagine the god of the universe creates this amazing world that can operate completely on its own he could have made it self-sufficient without being touched and yet he invites men and women to be the vehicles by which he continues this work of ordering and filling it's a gift In his book, It's Good to Be a Man, Michael Foster says this, it's through households that dominion is exercised. One one man alone achieves very little. A man and his wife achieve more. A man, his wife, and their grown children are a force to be reckoned with. And so we see these benefits of men and women filling their roles in the midst of community. We see it. Men leading, tending to and protecting, women companioning and helping and completing. And so as we learned in Genesis 2, we talked about this, this living out of God's character isn't just limited to men and women in the marriage relationship, right? I invited our single people to realize that's so true. You too are participating with us. God's image and His love for His people is definitely uniquely and powerfully manifested in the marriage relationship. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm not taking anything away from that. And strong families are the foundation of strong communities. And yet it's all of us. All of us together. Men, women. Young, old. Married, single. Who come together to make up God's family. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about as we've been talking about family and being a church that's really geared and oriented around family is making sure that the people that aren't married feel valuable and a connected part of who we are because you are. A lot of times I think the world and the evil one wants to 
kind of trick us into thinking that church is the only place that single people have a hard time connecting. So I actually looked up online, do single people have a hard time connecting in community? It's all over the place. Wondering, hey, a lot of my friends are married or this, and I'm not sure where I fit. That's not just true in the church. But the unique part that the evil one wants to keep us away from is this. In the church, where we're not in the world, you have a family. It's right here. And together, all of us complement one another, work together in community, and together, this group images Yahweh. In our friendships, in our working together for the common good, in our committed marriages, in our loving of one another, in our hospitality, welcoming people into our families, in bearing children, in our partnership with other imagers, in having dominion, in stewarding God's creation, in living with God, living before God, sharing His rule, church ordering, filling, and resting. This is God's design for us. This is what we were created to do. Now last week, Ian did a great job, was able to listen to his sermon on the way home, teaching how that design, all that, that we've been talking about, all that we were, have been intended, and all that God had intended for us, how that was disrupted. Through a willful choice to do life apart from God, in God's place, God's perfect plan is disrupted and distorted. And Ian said, that the created world was inverted. God, man, woman, animals. There's an inversion. There's a distortion. Yet while the image of God and men and women is distorted and inverted through this chapter 3, this fall, yet in the center of that chapter, because of the God, the grace of God, although distorted... It's not destroyed. So even in the midst of, as Ian said, uniquely fitted consequences for both men and women, this is the bad news, the gospel story was planted right in the middle of chapter 3. And so the good news of God's grace immediately undoes the power of sin. You with me? This is good news, church. So Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so Ian also reminded us that even in this disruption of God's perfect plan is his perfect plan of redemption. And one of the things that we're going to see in particular today And this begins a theme that runs itself throughout the entire Bible story. Is this theme of God setting others apart or favoring them in order to bring his blessing to the world through them. This is happening consistently throughout Scripture. Let me pause and let that sink in for a little bit.
because I don't, even those of us who have been around the church, I haven't heard it that much. I haven't thought about it that much. But there is, right from chapter 4, this redemptive, repetitive theme of God favoring particular people, loving them, and then through that relationship, blessing and promising to bless the world. True? Most clearly seen in the gospel. And so here in Genesis chapter 4, we see the infancy stages of the doctrine of election. This doctrine of God predisposing, pre-choosing on whom He will give His favor. It's, it's undeniable. God gives His favor to particular people through whom He's going to bless others. God favors men to lead over women. I don't know why He did it that way. He could have gone the opposite way. He favors Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. We're going to see that. He favors Abram, Abraham over his two brothers. He favors Jacob over Esau. He favors Joseph over his 11 brothers. He favors the Jewish nation over all other nations. He favors John the Baptist over all other men. He favors Jesus as the Passover lamb that will end all other sacrifices. He favors believers in Christ over those who don't believe in Christ. And so in the midst of this broken and distorted world, with broken and distorted people, the Lord favors or chooses or sets aside particular people or communities. He calls them to be like Him, to be set apart, to be holy, and to be willingly and sacrificially vessels through whom His blessing will flow to others. That's the call. I think we have trouble with this. You mentioned the doctrine of election, God favoring. We get uncomfortable. We don't like that God has favorites. We have trouble with this. Somehow in our minds we think if God favors them, He doesn't favor me. If God has a group that He likes better than the rest, then He must not like the others at all. Let me just, let me, let me just tell you this right at the out front. We have to adjust our thinking because that kind of thinking is the result of the fall. We have a hard time not inserting ourselves into every story. This story is about God, not about us. We struggle to see others blessed and not insert ourselves. True? Come on. Right? Let's be honest. Right? This is not just confessions of a wayward pastor. True? This is true of you too. This starts when we're little. Christmas time. Somebody gets a gift. Ah, I want that. We quiet that down, right? As adults. Oh, that's a very nice gift. 
Didn't they think I wanted that gift? We have a hard time not inserting ourselves. Church, God chooses particular ways through particular people by which he, in his ultimate wisdom, will bless the world. Blessing is coming. I heard one, it was actually the Bible Project, Tim Mackey and his guy were talking, they were talking about this kind of like a scene where there's a group of people and the host comes in and he gathers up three people and he says, hey, and he starts talking to them about organizing an event in this party that's going to bless everybody at the party. But because he's talking with these three people and they're, and they're getting along, people start going, why didn't he invite me into his group? Why didn't he ask me? Why don't I? And meanwhile, the whole time, he's trying to organize these people to bless all these people. And the people out there are going, What's, why am I not in the inner circle? That is the heart of man. And we see this clearly right here in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, with a heart of sin, does not like the way that the offering was to be done nor the fact that God favors the way he said it should be done. Cain doesn't like that. Cain thinks it should be done differently. But again, our thinking about that is a result of the fall. God favoring people. He's like, guys, give me a minute. It's coming. Blessing and favor to you. Just let me do it my way. But God does show favor to particular people in order to represent Him, to be agents of redemption, and then to reproduce themselves in the lives of others. And through them, He tangibly manifests His favor to all people. And God does this because he likes to share and because he wants other people to do the job and he wants to see them succeed and so he gives them favor to be able to manifest his presence into the world. But we often want to be the favored one. And even as I say that, this stirs up many Of an, it, even as I say this, it stirs up another theme that runs parallel to this favoring of God, and that is the questioning of God and His motives. These two things run parallel. God favors. I don't think I like the way He's favoring. I don't think I like the way He's doing that. Why do you do it that way, Lord? Why do you favor one over another? Why do you favor them over me? Is that really fair? Does God actually have my best interest in mind? Does he even have me in mind at all? You see where this is going? It is a mirror of chapter 3. Does God actually say, I think he's holding out on you. I think he favors somebody else and you're just a pawn. And and then when we look through these 
lenses through through this question and we look at those favored, what happens? Jealousy? Resentment? Bitterness? And James says, if it's, if it's there, if it's here, don't deny it. Pay attention to it. Repent and turn from it. True? We see this looking through these lenses of our questions at others being favored and disdain or hatred or jealousy of the recipients of God's favor. And we see this all throughout history. This is what World War II was all about. We even see it in our lives, our own personal lives. Some of us are even feeling it right now. I hear what Rob's teaching. I don't necessarily agree with him, nor do I like it. The reality of parallel resistance that runs right along God's favor is introduced here in Genesis chapter 4. It's this brilliant theme that's introduced here. Why does God do that? Because through the wisdom of His Word, He wants us to see how the heart of Cain forms in us, church. This is not an isolated story about some aggro brother that hacks his brother in the head with a rock. It's about us. It's about the propensity of how deep the fall runs into the heart of man and how it distorts our relationships if we don't pay attention. Are you with me? In Genesis chapter 4, God wants to see how wants us to see how the heart of Cain forms in us that we would be warned, that we would listen to his counsel that he gives us through his spirit, his word, and other people, and that we would turn our hearts toward him, not away from him like Cain did. That's what, that's what this story is about for us. So let me say it this way. In Genesis 2, at the end of Genesis 1 and 2, we see the beautiful creation of man and women in Yahweh's image, in both relationship and role. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the distortion, the inversion of that relationship and role in men. And in Genesis chapter 4, we see, the, we see this heart condition diagnosed so that we can see it for what it is what it's there for. And so, much like Genesis 2 is a deeper explanation of Genesis 1. Remember this? So Genesis 1, we get the general creation story of men and women. And then in Genesis 2, we get the detailed creation story of men and women. Just like that, Genesis chapter 4 is a detailed exposition of Genesis chapter 3. We begin to see the fall of man in living color in the lives of people. That's what we're supposed to see. You with me? And so throughout this account, 
Cain and Abel are repeatedly compared against one another. Cain is mentioned like 14 times, and Abel is mentioned nine times. Two times in by name and two times as a brother. And so this comparison between Cain and Abel and this interaction of counseling that's happening between Cain and the Lord are aimed to help us understand that the impact that chapter 3 has on the human heart, our hearts, and our relationships to God and to one another. We're going to read the first 16 chapters of Genesis chapter 4, and then we're going to pull out some ways that we're supposed to identify that Cain is thinking and and acting so that we cannot be like Cain. Back at it. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay. I'm, el- I'm self-editing. I wasn't going to... Oh. So, I have gotten a man with the help of is actually not in the original Hebrew text. So, the way it should read is, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Why am I saying that? Because Eve actually thought Cain was the promised seed to overthrow the evil one. The reason that that's gotten adjusted, I was watching in preparation for us. If you haven't been on the, the website, One for Israel, you really need to go there. It's a bunch of people who are Jewish who have come to know the Messiah, um, Christ. It's very, very good. And I listened in two different, one was a rabbi who um, flipped open to Isaiah chapter 53, and he's like, this is Jesus. And he said that it's interesting that... Uh, one of the other guys was saying, one of this other Israelis was saying that um, when he was talking to his rabbi, the, the rabbis have this really hard time. How could God become a man? It's an impossibility. God could not become a man. So any place where there's any hint of that in the Hebrew Torah that often gets adjusted years and years ago because they have to make it sound like Nobody really even gave thought to the fact that the Messiah could be a man. Eve did. That lends itself to the passage because we see the the birth of the gospel in the heart of Eve wondering, when is our Savior coming? And is my son him? So Adam knew his wife she conceived and she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of the time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard or favor for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Its desire is not consistent with who you are. Its desire is in opposition to you, not me. But you must rule over it. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? This is fixable, my son. But Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's, brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Team, there's a lot of things we could unpack in this passage, but let's just take a look at seven things that are true about the condition of Cain's heart. Okay? And so the first thing in verses 1 through 4, is that Cain's heart is already askew. There's something going on, we don't know quite what, but he is premeditatively resistant to God's way. Now, there's a lot of speculation around why Abel's sacrifice was more favorable than Cain's. We have no record of the fact that a sacrificial system was instituted. We have no record of a fact that God had said, I want it this way or that way. There's some assumptions that need to be understood or built in. But there's a, I, read, I probably read six or eight commentaries on this passage, and there was probably five or six different theories on what was happening here. So I want to kind of stay out of those weeds and just go to the New Testament, which does shed some light on this passage, and we can only know what we can know from the Word. Okay? And so Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, 
and God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So maybe it is that Abel offered his gift in faith, and Cain did not. I believe that's true. In 1 John 3.12, John says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What do we know about Cain? His heart was askew. He was predispositioned. There was something about Cain where he didn't have the faith. He didn't offer his gift in faith. And his deeds were unrighteous. Before this story even happens, here's what we do know beyond the shadow of a doubt. Something is askew in Cain's heart and he hasn't been paying attention to it. In some shape or form, Cain was holding on to the two primary lies instigated by the evil one. Is God really caring for me the best way? And did he really say? I think we will clearly, these these things get played out as we work through the rest of the chapter. Another thing we know right from these very first verses is both of these brothers knew what the other brother had offered and they obviously knew what God's response was. I favor yours, I don't favor yours. Now think, church, before we're tempted to keep this as some 4,000-year-old story that's way out there, think about what God's trying to do here. These things have been written for our behalf so that we will not sin as they did. This story is for us. Think about how insidious sin is. Abel? I favor your offering. Cain, I don't favor yours. Why wouldn't Cain just say, well, what do I need to do, Lord? I'm sorry. I blew it. It's the adjustment. How can I please you? Have you ever been in that place? The Lord says, not very pleased with that. And then what starts? Well, so-and-so, or he's this, or when we were first in relationship, he told me this, or she said this about herself, and those things weren't true, and what are that, and this, and, and it's, it's Genesis chapter 3 all over again. The wife you gave me, well, the man, he, it's insidious. Why not just adjust to God? But here's why. For all of his focus on Abel, Cain neglected his own heart and considering why his offer wasn't favored. Why? Because he was so focused on how God was doing it wrong and how Abel was the problem here, he couldn't see himself. So Cain's heart is askew. Then look at verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. 
Cain's angry response reveals that he believes that inherently the problem does not lie with himself, but ultimately with God. Cain sees himself as a victim of God's favoring of somebody else. So much so that it changes his physical appearance. His whole body language changes. And instead of being teachable, as we just talked about, eager to adjust his offering or himself in order to be pleasing to God, rather than that, Cain gets seething mad, violently angry. And he's justified in it. He has reasons why. It makes sense to him. We can keep this story painted on the walls of some Sunday school room, you know, of our childhood. Not many of us has bashed one of our siblings or our spouses, maybe, in the head with a rock. But I think if we really start to see what's happening here in this passage, we may begin to see how that our heart can be more like Cain than we might have thought. So Cain's heart is askew. He finds fault with God's way. He's angry. And then the third thing is God, or Cain resists God's counsel. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? And if you do well, will you not be accepted? So here the Lord asks Cain three questions. It's not because the Lord doesn't know. Right? What's he doing? He's trying to get Cain to think about his own heart condition. Cain, why, why are you angry? What's going on? What's happening in there? Why is your shoulders collapsed in? Why is your face fallen? Cain, what's happening? Now remember the context here. He's in a near perfect universe with a God that's speaking to him, loving him enough to pursue him and asking him questions. God asked Jonah a similar question in Jonah chapter 4 4. Jonah's not happy with God's way, right? He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish. Then he gets swallowed by a whale, spit up on shore, ends up going back, goes to the city, reluctantly does what God wants him to do. Turn, repent. Probably preaches the worst message in the planet, the history of all sermons. I hope you repent. God's going to forgive you. And he turns around and walks out in the wilderness. And the people are like, he'll forgive us. Hurrah! And he's like, see, I knew that's what you would do. I knew you would do that with those people. He's mad. He's frustrated. He doesn't like the way God is doing things. And what's God's question to Jonah? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? 
Jonah, is anger serving you? And so he asks Cain. Cain, is this really doing good unto you? And the Lord, again, wants Cain to know this is fixable. Just adjust your heart to what is true, Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? This is true, Abel or Cain. You know, just um, turn. This is doable. The problem is with Cain, not with God. Sometimes, friends, in faith, when your relationships are really struggling, you need to sit down, you need to close your eyes, and you need to say, the problem is with me, not with you, God. And so God both affirms and warns Cain in verse 7. Sin's desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Just pause for a moment. Remind us that sometimes these three questions be really helpful for us. Why am I so angry? Why is my face falling? If I do well, if I turn to the Lord, if I repent, isn't He right there? But that's not what Cain does. So the fourth thing that's true about Cain is he intentionally and willfully acts on his own thinking. He can't change God's mind. God's not going to do life his way. And so in a willful declaration of independence, Cain says, I will act on the way that makes my life work, that that my mind can get around. That's the way I'm going to do life. So he takes the form of God, a life giver and a life taker, and he eliminates what he believes to be his problem, his own brother. But God has a very different perspective on this situation. So God comes to Cain and he says, where's your brother Abel? And so the fifth thing that we see is true about Cain's heart is that he hides and he excuses. Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you see yourself, church, in this passage, or is it just me? I mean, there's times I go, I, man, I have done that. Man, I have, I have my heart's not been in the right place, and then, um, you know, finding fault with God's way and doesn't make sense and this and I don't like who you've put over me or I don't like my boss or I don't like who you've given me as a spouse or I don't like this or I don't like it that way. 
And then God's counsel comes to me through his word, through other people, and I resist his counsel. And then I go, you know what? I'm just going to do this my own way anyway. And then I get confronted with my own sin. And then I'm hiding and excusing. Have you been there? That's what this, God says, don't do that. Turn from that. This is how the heart of Cain is born in you. This is how sin, this is how Genesis 3 manifests itself in your hearts. Turn, turn to me. But Cain hides and excuses. His is a heart seared by sin, a calloused conscience. And even when faced with the fact and blood on his hands, he blames God. It's his choices that are making his life so hard. And he says, how have you done this to me? And so much like Cain, he's the first one. He plays the fool. And then justifies himself. But God sees through it. His judgment still stands. Nonetheless, God doesn't change. There's still consequences to Cain's actions. God pronounces his judgment to Cain's um, sinful choices. He's guilty. Cain is guilty and he receives just consequences for his sin. But then we see the sixth thing that's true about Cain's heart is he feels sorry for himself and he misses the immensity of God's grace. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I could bear. First, he nurtures a heart of disbelief, possibly rebellion. He refuses God's counsel when it's directly offered. He premeditatively kills his brother. He lies about it. He makes no excuses. He shows zero remorse. And then when the Lord graciously deals with him, he says, you're wrong even in your judgments. This is way too hard for me. The problem is still with you. You see it? God could have squashed him right there and sent him to eternity forever in hell apart from him where there is no God anywhere ever for the rest of his known existence in eternity. That's what God could have done. And graciously, he sends him to another place, marks him so that he won't be ill-treated. And Cain says, what's your problem? And the seventh thing we see about Cain's heart is that he blames God for his circumstances. Look at verse 14. Behold, you have driven me away. Excuse me? Lord, you've done this to me. Say what? Proverbs 19.3 captures this very well. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. And what we see here in verse 7 is what it looks like for someone to be turned over to their own desires, resisting God's counsel, 
And at this point, in spite of God's pursuit of Cain, his counsel, his direction and help, God's gracious kindness, even in his judgment, Cain is unable to turn in repentance. And we see the way that his rest of his life turns out. God says he's going to be a wanderer. He says, no, I'm not going to be a wanderer. I'm going to set up in a city and I'm going to plant myself. And then his generation goes on to be murderers and thieves. Let's look back at this invitation that God makes to Cain. In verse 7. If you do well, will you be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Church, we have been created to order, to fill, and to rest. To represent God, to reproduce ourselves both physically and spiritually. And to redeem things. That's who we've been created to be. The fall has distorted that, but it hasn't destroyed it. It's there. And the thing, hear hear me, the thing that will keep us from doing that is a heart like Cain's. Hear me? The thing that will keep us from living out our God-ordained and manifested calling is to nurture a heart like Cain's heart. Don't do it. Turn from that. Leaving our heart askew, finding fault with God's way, resisting God's counsel, intentionally and willfully acting and thinking on our own counsel, hiding and excusing, feeling sorry for ourselves, missing God's grace and then blaming God for our misery. Turn. You see that in any area of your life? Turn. God says, if you do well, repent. Turn. See, because the the promised seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 has come, church, that's why we celebrate Christmas, because the seed of the woman has come and He is He did and He is restoring us to God the Father. That He is restoring us to the kingdom. That we can live in the power and the truth of the gospel. We do not have to have a heart like Cain's. That's the message of Genesis 4. We are free to obey the good news of the promised seed, the gospel that's come to us. God says, you can turn and it will go well for you. Again, Michael Foster says this, Sin does not eliminate our natural inclinations. It corrupts them. And in the same way, grace does not replace our natural inclinations. It restores them. It's good news. Because of the grace of God, our natural inclinations to be a representative of God, to be to be a reproducer of God, to be a redeemer in God's stead, that is renewed in us, church. And we can turn and follow Him. Representing, reproducing, redeeming, it's restored in us. 
through the woman's seed, through the Messiah, through Jesus. So as men, we can be restored to lead and to tend and to protect. And women, you can be restored to companion, to help, and to complete. Father, at any point, if we find ourselves in the way of Cain's heart, may we turn to you. The way that sin finds its way into our lives and tricks us into believing that somehow we know better than you. We're jealous that you don't favor us. We get angry at your way. Whatever that, however that manifests itself, Lord, may we um, turn ourselves from you. Turn ourselves from sin to you. Lord, that we would turn to the gospel that you have provided for us, the good news through the promised seed of the woman that we know now to be our Savior, Jesus. We turn to him. Lord, it is this heart of Cain that disrupts our marriages. It is this heart of Cain that disrupts our relationships in church here with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's this heart that causes us to stand in our sin with blood on our hands and refuse to turn. Lord, we repent of that. We turn to You. Thank You for counseling us with Your Word. Thank You for directing us through Your Spirit. Thank You for giving us of Yourself. Thank You for implanting Your nature your image in us. Thank you for giving us the power of your indwelling spirit to overcome sin, to overcome our sinful heart condition and turn to you in repentance and to be like you in imaging you in representing you. And all this kindness we have in Jesus. And so may we now even Lord turn and just give our praise to you through song, through giving, through a response of changed lives and changed minds, um, as an offering of praise to you because of your goodness to us. Thank you for hearing our prayers, for covering us in Christ. Amen.